You are listening to the Passion City Church podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. When I was 16, I got my driver's license, and from the beginning, I had a Class A restriction slapped on my license, uh, which indicated that I would have to wear corrective lenses while operating a motor vehicle. I would imagine several of you have the same restriction on your license. So here's just a little bit about myself. Early on, I learned that I have an astigmatism in my right eye, which just means that my right eye vision is blurry, but my left eye sees just fine. So after middle school, I just gave up on wearing glasses altogether. And I never got into the contact thing because I learned that I could just let my left eye do the heavy lifting and then my right eye would just kind of follow along and I felt like I could see just fine. And so even when I turned 16 and I got my driver's license, which had a restriction requiring me to wear glasses while driving, uh, I just took that more of a, as a suggestion than a, as a requirement. And uh, I never wore glasses while driving. By the way, I'm giving free rides after the service tonight if, uh, if you need a driver. But um, for the first year or two of driving, uh, I grew in my confidence in my ability to see while driving. And I grew so confident in my ability to see that when my driver's license came up for renewal after a year or two, I didn't even bother taking my glasses with me to the Department of Public Safety because I wanted to show the workers there that my vision was just fine. Therefore, they should remove the Class A restriction from my license. So I waited in line, and when it was my turn, I walked up to the counter, and I don't know how you guys do things here in Georgia, but in Texas, you have to take an eye test. And the way that it works is you put your face up to this machine, and inside of this machine, there's this eye chart, and you read the eye chart to, to the kind worker behind the counter, at the DPS, and so I put my face up to the machine, and the lady asked me to read line three. So that's what I did, I read line three. No, let me change that, I crushed line three. And I kid you not, like I'm not exaggerating here, like as I am reading line three, I find myself like welling up with pride inside of me at just how well I am reading line three, and after I read every letter of line three accurately, after I aced line three, I pulled back my head from the machine, and I kid you not, I'm not exaggerating here, I, I expected some type of praise or affirmation from the worker behind the counter at the Department of Public Safety. But instead of seeing amazement on her face, I saw that she was dissatisfied and confused. And here's what she said. She said, you're not done. She said, there's still more. You you actually left out all of column three. 
And I was like, yeah, I left out column three because there was no column three. There was column one and column two. Let me just remind you, I aced column one and column two. So let's just remove the restriction. But she said, no, you missed all of column three. And so I had to see for myself. So I put my face back up to the machine this time. I knew that column three would have been on the right side and it's my right eye, which is the bad eye. So I stuck my left eye where the right eye goes. And I kid you not, that lady wasn't lying. There it was. There was column three. Apparently, I wasn't done. Apparently, there was more. Apparently, there was an entire column that I missed. Now, why am I even telling you this tonight? As I thought about my experience at the DPS, I just felt like I needed to come here tonight from Texas to Georgia to tell you that with Jesus Christ, there is always a column three. Like, I don't know how well you think you know Jesus, but I just need you to know that Jesus is always more than you think he is. Like Jesus is always more than you know him to be. So it doesn't matter how much you feel like you've seen Jesus. It doesn't matter whether you've known Jesus for seven days or 70 years. My goal tonight is to simply be the worker behind the spiritual DPS counter telling you you're not done. There is more. There is a column three to Jesus, the width of eternity packed full of his greatness and his goodness and his beauty and his kindness and his glory. Do not settle for anything less. If Jesus is more, don't settle for less. I just want you to think about how the scriptures position Jesus. The scriptures position God as the God of more. You guys talk about that here at Passion City. You think about Ephesians chapter three. What does it say? Now to him who is able to do what? Immeasurably more. Now God's actions are always a reflection of his character. And so God is able to do immeasurably more because he is immeasurably more. And so here's my hope and my prayer for tonight. My hope and my prayer for tonight is that some of you guys are going to get spiritual glasses for the first time in your life. And some of you are going to see Jesus for the first time and he's going to introduce himself to you and you're going to respond and it's going to be the beginning of an eternal relationship tonight. And then my prayer for many others in this place tonight is that we would simply come together and believe that Jesus is more than we know him to be. And so we just might need to tweak our prescriptions so that we could begin to get a glimpse of column three. And at the end, here's my hope. My hope is that we would come together and our prayer would be, Jesus, if you are more, then I want to know you more and I want to love you more than anything. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me tonight to Revelation chapter one. Revelation chapter one, that just freaks some of you guys out. Let's just be honest. You didn't come here thinking that you were going to study Revelation. We're going to skip over the section about a dragon eating a baby. So you don't need to worry. We're not going there tonight. But the reason that I wanted to open Revelation chapter one to you is because I don't know if you know this, but Revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which is where we get our word apocalypse. And it simply means unveiling. 
So the book of Revelation exists to unveil something to us, and that sounds really strange to us because if you've ever tried to read the book of Revelation, it feels like the book is trying to conceal, not reveal, all right? Because it's extremely difficult to understand. But what does the first line of the book say? It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So if revelation means unveiling, then what this is saying is that revelation doesn't exist first and foremost to give you charts and timelines about how the world is going to end. It's not where our goal tonight isn't to figure out if you're going to just evaporate one day and your clothes are going to be left on a chair because you've been raptured out of this joint. Like that's not our goal tonight. Revelation means unveiling which means that the book of Revelation exists first and foremost to pull back the curtain on Jesus Christ in a way that no other book in the Bible can or does. Now, here's what I really love. The book of Revelation was written by the apostle John. Okay, John was one of Jesus's boys. Like he was handpicked to be one of the 12. But then not just that, John got to be on the inner circle with Jesus. There was Peter, James, and John. And these three were extra tight with Jesus. And so John got to experience a lot that the other 12 or the other nine didn't get to experience. But John was the guy like at the Last Supper that we see Uh, reclining on the bosom of Jesus. You can't get any closer to Jesus than hanging out on his bosom. And then when Jesus is hanging on the cross, what does he do with John? He looks at John and he entrusts his mom to John. John in his own gospel humbly refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John wrote the gospel of John, makes sense. And then he wrote first, second, and third John. And so John knew Jesus. And in Revelation chapter one, Jesus is gonna show up and basically be like, hello, McFly, anybody home? You think that you know me, but John, I just want you to know that there is always a column three with me. And so you know me, but you need to know that I am more than you know me to be. And so as Jesus is unveiling himself to John, we get to sit in and watch. And as he calls John to more, he calls us to more. So let me just read you the vision that John has starting in verse nine, and then we'll begin to talk. It says this. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now watch this. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, this is Jesus, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace." 
and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. In his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. If you want a title for this passage of Scripture, or if you want a title for this talk, here it is very simply, Jesus is more. That's it. Jesus is more. Jesus is always more. And what I want to do tonight is I want to give you four key truths that I hope will simply tweak your spiritual prescription so that you will leave here seeing that Jesus is more than anything. The first thing that I want you to see is this Jesus is more satisfying than anything. Jesus is more satisfying than anything. What I want to do is I want to roll back through the vision that John had of Jesus because there's a lot of symbolism. There were several likes in the passage indicating symbolism and there's different things that Jesus is wearing and there's different descriptions about Jesus that we need to unpack so that you can understand the symbolism and get the meaning. So it starts and it says that Jesus was wearing a long robe with a golden sash. These were articles of clothing that were worn by a priest. A, a priest was responsible for making atonement for the sins of the nation of Israel. And so once a year, a priest would enter into the most holy place of the temple and he would sacrifice an animal and sprinkle blood from the animal on the altar. And he would do this once a year for, to atone for the sins of the nation of Israel. Israel. Jesus is our priest, and Jesus Christ has atoned for our sins. Instead of offering an animal sacrifice, he offered himself. Instead of shedding the blood of a goat, his own blood was shed for you and for me. And here's what I love. After Jesus Christ died on a cross, he walked out of a tomb. He appeared to people for a period of 40 days and then he ascended into heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. The reason that, sat, that Jesus sat down was because he had finished his priestly responsibilities. Priests for the nation of Israel would have to atone for the sins of Israel once a year. Jesus Christ made payment on the cross once and for all. So he sat down saying, it is finished. It goes on, it says the, hair, the hairs of his head were white. Some of you in here really get that, like the Bible has never made more sense to you. That's like your life verse now. The hairs of his head were white. That's how I'm like Jesus. Anyway, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. This is symbolizing the wisdom and the omniscience of Jesus. It's saying that Jesus is all-knowing. Let me Position it like this. Jesus' wisdom is limitless. 
It says his eyes were like a flame of fire. It's speaking of Jesus's penetrating insight in discernment. Nothing is hidden from his sight. He always knows exactly what's going on below the surface of every man and woman. It says his feet were like burnished bronze. In the ancient world, a soldier's shoes were extremely important. If he went into battle with the wrong shoes, it could lead to bleeding and and blistering, and it would compromise his ability to fight. Well, Jesus's feet are burnished bronze. They're Therefore, he is able to crush his enemies. And that's exactly what he did on the cross. He is a victorious, conquering king. It says his voice was like the roar of many waters. You think about the power of a great waterfall. You think about it standing in front of Niagara Falls or standing on a balcony, listening to the pounding of ocean waves against the surface. It says that his voice is like roaring waters, symbolizing his power, majesty, and sovereignty. It says in his right hand, he held seven stars. We don't know what the seven stars are. We think that they're possibly angels, whatever they are. It shows that Jesus is able to control and protect them. It says, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. This refers to his words, which are able to penetrate and judge those who oppose him. And then last, it says that his face shone like the sun. I love that. Like when you were a kid, did you and your friends ever like try and have a staring contest with the sun? It's so dumb. It's like, let's see how long we can look at it. And so you look at the sun and tears begin to pour down your face and you begin to see spots. And then there's these gates that begin to open. Don't walk towards them anyway. You know what this is saying? It's just saying that Jesus's beauty is beyond your comprehension. Your finite mind, heart and soul cannot comprehend the limitless beauty of Jesus Christ. Now, I told you that Jesus is more satisfying than anything. How does any of this have anything to do with Jesus Christ being satisfying? Well, to answer that question, you have to determine what your soul is truly hungry for. You know your soul has an appetite for something. Some of you here tonight are hungry for peace and stability. That's what you long for. You long for peace and stability because you are in the midst of asking the who, what, when, and where questions of life. Who am I supposed to spend the rest of my life with? What am I supposed to do with the rest of my life? When am I supposed to graduate? When are we supposed to move? When are we supposed to start a family? When am I supposed to retire? Where are we supposed to invest financially? Where are we supposed to invest in ministry? Where are we supposed to connect regarding a church? These are massive questions. And when you find yourself in the midst of an unknown, it can cause stress. Do you know what stress is? Stress is just a distress signal of the soul that you're looking inward instead of upward. That's what anxiety is. It's a distress signal that you're looking inward instead of upward. Do you know where your satisfaction is? Your satisfaction is in the white hair of Jesus Christ. Your satisfaction is found in the limitless wisdom of Jesus Christ, who is able to get you through every moment of every day on into eternity. Some of you here tonight are hungry for hope. 
You know, we just sang, there's power in the name of Jesus to break every chain. And some of you, when you sang that, you, you, if you were honest, you thought, yeah, but not for me. Because you've stopped and started again one too many times. You've quit and you've relapsed. And each time that's happened, your hope has become depleted. And so something in you wonders if your addiction to pornography, your, your struggle with alcohol or drugs, if you're overeating or undereating or overspending or harming yourself, you just begin to wonder if these things are now just who you are. You know where your satisfaction is tonight? Your satisfaction is in the burnished bronze feet of Jesus Christ who is able to crush his enemies. If he walked out of a tomb, surely you can walk out of yours. Jesus Christ has everything you need to take a step towards victory. Some of you here tonight, let's just be honest. You're hungry for meaning. Like if you were really honest tonight, you're playing this religious game. For you, religion is about completion instead of connection. It's like, okay, I went to church tonight. I've given some money. I'm trying not to do dumb things. It's about completion. I check, I read my Bible this week. Check, I've said the Lord's Prayer a few times this week. You know where your satisfaction is found? It's found in the flaming gaze of Jesus Christ who sees below the surface of your life to your heart. He wants, he will settle for nothing less than your heart. He will settle for nothing less than a real, authentic, enjoyable, satisfying relationship with him. He doesn't want to play games. And he didn't ask you to come in here just to go through some half-hearted rituals. He wants your heart. Some of you are hungry for worth. Man, your life just gets beaten down by this voice of condemnation that gets a lot of airtime in your life just telling you you're not enough. You're never enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not strong enough. You're not wealthy enough. You're not successful enough. You're not skinny enough. You are not godly enough. And so you just get beaten down by this voice of condemnation in your life. For others of you, it's, it's you're really not lovable. Because if someone truly got to know you, they would run from you. There's no way that someone could truly love you for who you are. This voice of condemnation in your life. Do you know where your satisfaction is tonight? It's in the roaring waters voice of Jesus Christ. And may his voice of power, majesty, and sovereignty drown out that voice of condemnation, declaring you are in fact enough for me because I've made you enough through my death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. And then for others of you, you're hungry for freedom. You're just hungry for freedom from shame. Man, shame has turned you into half of the person you were made to be. And you spend so much time looking in the rearview mirror and you've begun to believe that what you've done is now who you are. And you are defined by your failures. Do you know where your satisfaction is tonight? It's in the long robe and the sash of Jesus Christ because he's still your priest. 
He dealt with your sin and he still has finally dealt with your sin. It's permanent. So there's satisfaction for you there tonight. That one really speaks to me. I'll just tell you, I'll tell you this. Uh, a while back, my wife was cleaning out one of our closets and she came across a lot of my old journals. And I just want to be clear, I didn't say diaries. It's very different. It's not like, dear diary, today was great. Lilas, see you tomorrow. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like manly, like leather bound journals. And so she took my journals and she put them on my desk in my home office. And it was a Saturday night and I was just going to go zone out and watch Netflix. And I felt like God was prompting me to just go into my home office. And so I went into my home office and I just sat down in my chair. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing here. Like, God, you know, but I don't know. And then I looked and I saw those journals sitting right on my desk. And so I opened them up and I began to read through them. And I read page after page of shame. Page after page of me just journaling my heart out, feeling like a failure. Not a good enough husband. Not a good enough dad. Not a good enough follower of Jesus Christ. Not a good enough minister of the gospel. Do you know what I did? I sat there and I tore out every single page and I shredded it. Why? Because that's not my story. Jesus Christ took my story of failure and traded it for his story of forgiveness in favor. And so my past failures aren't anchors of shame that I have to tow around through life. No, my past failures become trophies of God's grace. I don't have a story to hide. I have a story to tell. And so that is my satisfaction because Jesus Christ still has on his robe and his sash. And he is my priest. Jesus is more satisfying than anything. The second thing that I need you to know tonight is this. Jesus is more glorious than anything. Look back again at John's response. I love this. Verse 17, it says this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now, here's the interesting thing. This isn't the first time that John had had this experience with God. Back in Matthew 17, it's something known as the transfiguration of Jesus, where Jesus was transfigured into a more glorified state. And then God the Father spoke audibly. And when he did, Peter, James, and John hit the ground. And then it wasn't just these three disciples that had this experience of falling before Jesus. This happened in the Old Testament as well. The prophet Ezekiel gets a vision of Jesus. And what's his response? Ezekiel 128 says this, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of the one speaking. So apparently falling on the ground as though dead isn't the exception. It's the norm when you see Jesus. It's like your body just knows what to do. It's like your body is like, this is what I've, made to do, what I've been made to do. When I see Jesus, I get low. That's what happens. Like the brain doesn't have to communicate with my knees. They're just supposed to buckle. When Jesus shows up, I get low. And that's an interesting thought because if those doors were to open and Jesus Christ were to walk into this place tonight, do you know what your response would be? you would hit the ground. 
like your knees would be like, he's here, I'm down. No one would sit there with their arms crossed and then the words of Kip Dynamite from Napoleon Dynamite, no one would be like, he's pretty good, I guess. Like that wouldn't happen. That wouldn't be a thing. No, you'd hit the ground. Why? Because you've been made to worship. You have been wired to worship. That's how you've been made. And I see this very clearly in the lives of my kids. My kids, since early on, have shown me that they are only able to give all of their time, attention, affection, and affection to one thing at a time. So when they were two or three, it was the movie Cars. And so now I know every word to every scene of the movie Cars. And we have cars all over our house that I can step on and cuss. I don't cuss. Anyway. Um, but it was cars. But then cars lost its luster and it turned into Monster Zinc. And so we have a, like a model of the scare floor. But then Monster Zinc got worn out and it turned to Star Wars. And so they were really into Star Wars. And we got lightsabers. And we've got all this different Star Wars stuff. But then... Star Wars was out, and then Jurassic World was in, and so I've got more Velociraptors and T-Rexes than I can count, but then Jurassic World wore out, and now it's Harry Potter, and don't email me saying Harry Potter's the Antichrist. We already know that he is. I don't need you to email me and tell me. But do you want to know what my toy closet is? It's not mine, my kids, just to be clear. Do you want to know what my kids' toy closet is? It's a graveyard for failed gods. Because at all these different points in my kids' lives, they lost their glory. And their heart will not settle for anything less than the glorious one for which it's been made. And we can listen to that and be like, oh, that's cute. That's what kids do. No, that's what we do. Our hearts have been made for one that is glorious and our hearts are longing for that one. Our hearts are searching for that one, but our tendency is to take God's gifts and turn them into God's. And so we worship sex, we worship money, we worship uh, success, we worship our work, we worship our kids, we worship the idea of romantic love. But isn't it interesting that as we worship these things, we always could stand to have just a little bit more. Why? Because they lose their glory. And your body will only involuntarily hit the ground for one. And it's the glorious one for whom you have been made. Jesus Christ is more glorious than anything. The third thing that I need you to know tonight is that Jesus is more necessary than anything. He's more necessary than anything. Look at how things proceed in verse 17. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his hand on me. And listen to what Jesus says. He says, fear not. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death 
in Hades. I love what he says. He's just straight up, he's like, I died, but now I'm alive, and I'm alive forevermore. See, you're going to have to die, but Jesus wants you to live forever. When Jesus said, I died, he's not just saying I physically died. What he's saying is, I was punished so that you wouldn't have to be. I died in your place. That payment, that death was actually a payment for your sin. But now I'm alive. Because my resurrection was a declaration from God the Father that my payment was accepted by him. So I don't need to stay dead. I can actually be alive forevermore. That's why Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Because Jesus wants you to know if you want to spend eternal life with him in heaven when you die, it's going to have to have everything to do with him. He says, I hold the keys to death and Hades. That's saying, I have authority over your eternity. And Jesus isn't standing there against the door like, what do you got for me? No, Jesus is saying, I want all to come in. I desire all men and women to be saved, but it has to come solely through faith. There is nothing you can do to get to me. That's okay. I have done everything to come to you, to take you to where I am. It is solely through faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ that eternal life is possible. He is more necessary than anything if you want to experience eternal life with God when you die. But did you see what he said right before that? He said, I am the first and the last. You know what the picture is? It's, it's I'm the first, I'm the last, I'm everything in between. Jesus is saying, I, I'm the first, like I was, I was in the beginning. Colossians 1.16 says about Jesus, all things have been created through him. It means Jesus Christ was the agent of creation. Nothing came into being without coming into being through Jesus Christ. He's saying, I was in the beginning. And then his life, his death, his resurrection are at the crux of history. But he doesn't just say, I'm the first. He says, I'm the last. And you see in Revelation, Jesus flexing showing his supremacy over Satan's sin and death, making all things new in the end. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, I'm the first, I'm the last, I'm everything in between. He's saying, I am the point of everything. I'm the point. Colossians 1.16 goes on and says that all things have been created through him and for him. He's the point of everything. Here's what that means. It means if you want to know your purpose, let me just tell you right now what it is. Like if you've been struggling to know why you still have breath in your lungs, if you've been questioning your meaning, if you've been wondering if your life truly matters, let me just tell you why you still have oxygen in your lungs. Here it is. All of life comes down to just one thing. It's to know Jesus and make him known. You're like, that's two things. No, it's one thing. Because when you know Jesus, you make him known. That's why you exist. That's the point of your life. So do not miss what I'm about to tell you. To make Jesus a part of your life, but not the point of your life, is to waste your life. 
Do you hear what I'm telling you? To make Jesus a part of your life, whether small or big, to make him a part of your life, but not the point of your life, is to waste your life. Jesus is more necessary than anything if you want to fulfill the purpose for which you've been created. Let me position it this way. Uh, The first time I officiated a wedding, I officiated the wedding of one of my closest friends. It was, his name is John, his wife's name is Sarah. And they got married uh, about two months before I proposed to now my wife, Catherine. Now, I just want you to think about this. What if I officiated John and Sarah's wedding and after the wedding, we went to the reception and uh, we just had this incredible time celebrating the beginning of John and Sarah's marriage. But what if right in the middle of the reception, I walk over to the band that's probably crushing it and I take their microphone and I'm like, hey everybody, thank you so much for coming out tonight. Hasn't, been, hasn't it been a great night celebrating John and Sarah? Uh, thanks, yeah. <laughs> but now... If I may have your attention, Catherine, if you'll come out here, please. Catherine, I love you. Will you marry me? Yes? Awesome. Let's spend the rest of the night celebrating the fact that a girl like this would say yes to a dude like this. What do you think would happen in this moment? Sarah the bride would go all bridezilla over me. But isn't this what we do with Jesus Christ? He is the point. All of life is about him, but what we're doing is we're walking over to the van saying, hey, let me just see the microphone. Hey, isn't it great that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead? Now let's spend the rest of our lives dealing with my dreams and my passions. I want the rest of my life to be about me and my pleasure and my enjoyment and what I want to do. It's about my success. It's about my house. It's about my cars. It's about my stuff. All of life is about me in myself, in my dreams, in what I want. You need to decide. Does Jesus exist for you or do you exist for Jesus? Jesus is more necessary than anything. The last thing that I need you to know tonight is this, Jesus is more worthy than anything. We skipped over it at at the beginning of John's vision But in verse 13, John says, in the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man. We've heard that title before. That was actually Jesus's favorite title for himself in the gospels. But that's not the first time that the phrase son of man comes up. Son of man actually points back to Daniel chapter seven. And I just want you to hear what Daniel chapter seven says about the Son of Man. It says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. We know it's talking about the same person because of what Revelation chapter 1, 7 says. It says, behold, he is coming with the clouds. It's the same person. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given. Look at what Jesus is given. He was given dominion. What's dominion? It's control and sovereignty. 
He was given glory. What's glory? It's honor. He was given a kingdom. What's a kingdom? It's a realm in which to reign. And now we get a little glimpse into what that kingdom entails, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel has this vision saying, hey, this one is coming and he is going to be the king above all kings. He's going to be the Lord of all lords. And we know that Jesus Christ is that person right now. Jesus is king now. He's the king of all kings now. I tell you that because John picks it up in Revelation 1.5 and listen to what he says. He says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Jesus already rules over the kings of the earth. In Matthew 28, Jesus says this. He says, all power and authority have been given to me. What is that? That's dominion. Philippians 2 says that God has exalted Jesus. And has given him the name that's above every name. What's that? What is that? That's glory. He's given him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What is that? That's a kingdom. Jesus Christ is the King of Kings now. Now. If Jesus is king, then we just need to know that he's more. He's more than the figurehead of a religion, although he is the Christ of Christianity. Jesus Christ is more than savior, although he absolutely is the savior of the world. Jesus Christ is more than forgiver. Although forgiveness of sins is solely found in him, Jesus Christ is peace in the midst of the storm. He's more than peace in the midst of the storm, although he is the Prince of Peace. And Jesus is more than healer, even though he absolutely is the great physician. Jesus Christ is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And if Jesus Christ is King, why would he ever be okay being anything less in your life. If Jesus Christ is king, why would he ever settle for anything less? If Jesus Christ already has the name that's above every name, then why would he ever be okay taking second, third, fourth, fifth place to your name or anyone else's name that you choose to exalt? If Jesus is more satisfying and glorious and necessary than anything, then surely he's more worthy than anything to rule and reign in your heart. One of our volunteers at Breakaway, the ministry I lead at Texas A&M University, invited this girl to come to Breakaway. And you know what she said? No. So she invited her again, said, hey, would you come to Breakaway? She said, why would I go to Breakaway? 
So this volunteer of ours just kept inviting her to breakaway. So finally, this girl came to breakaway and it prompted a lot of questions in her life to the point where she ended up in my office just telling me about her life. She grew up in a Muslim home. And as she began to process through life, she felt the weight of her sins. She felt the weight of her failures and she didn't feel like there was any escape from all of the failures that she had incurred in her life. Then she was introduced to Jesus. She was introduced specifically to the grace of Jesus. And she came to understand that Christianity isn't about you realizing what you need to do for God. It's about you realizing what Jesus Christ has done for you. When you could do nothing for God, God did everything for you. It's not about you being good enough for him. It's about realizing that Jesus Christ has come and been good enough for you. So at the end of this past fall, I gave an opportunity to pray to receive Christ at Breakaway, and she just slipped up her hand and said, yeah, I want Jesus Christ to be my savior, which was incredible. But then we begin to have conversations after every Tuesday night at Breakaway. She would come up to me and some of our conversations were really encouraging and then some of them were pretty heavy. She would come up to me on some Tuesday nights and she had her Bible clutched in her arm like this and I could see that there were all these tabs and notes like sticking out of it. And I was like, man, I need to start reading my Bible more clearly. Like she is getting after it. But then there were other Tuesdays where she would come up and she would just say, what's going to happen when my parents find out? My parents are going to disown me. They're going to want to have nothing to do with me. Other people don't have to go through that. Why do I have to go with that? I don't even know that I want to be a Christian anymore. And she just kept wrestling. She kept pressing into the Lord. And just a little over a month ago, she stood with a group of friends, a few hundred college students from Texas A&M University, and she declared, Jesus Christ is more worthy than anything, and I cannot live without him. So it doesn't matter what happens with my family. It doesn't matter if I get disowned. I need Jesus Christ. I can't live without him. So now when she goes home and her parents still don't know that she is now a Christian, she waits till everyone has gone to bed just so that she can get out her Bible and read because she sat there and told her friends, I cannot live without the word of God. I can't go without it. And then she stepped into the waters and she was baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit declaring Jesus Christ is more worthy than anything. I'll close just by taking you back to the Department of Public Safety. You know what? I walked out that day knowing that there was more for me to see. You know what the interesting thing is? I have glasses, but I still don't wear them. I still choose not to wear my glasses. Do you know what I'm saying when I choose not to wear my glasses? All I'm saying is this. I know there's more to see. I'm just fine without it. May that never be true with Jesus. May that never be true with Jesus. May we never come to a place where we say, yeah, I know that there's more to see. I'm just okay without it. Now, if Jesus Christ is more satisfying than anything, 
And if Jesus Christ is more glorious than anything, and if Jesus Christ is more necessary than anything, and if Jesus Christ is more worthy than anything, then may the, may the prayer of our hearts tonight be, Jesus Christ, I want to know you and love you more than anything. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church Podcast.